I'm here on Green Street in Lower Manhattan in the Soho neighborhood between Houston and Princess Street. A lot of beautiful buildings. Some sort of store, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. There's a Ralph Lauren, Warby Parker. There's one old house it looks like amongst all the other ones of really high ceilings. And at the end of the street is the climax of all modern civilization, an Apple store. The Green Street Block is in one of the most desirable neighborhoods in Manhattan, but it wasn't always like this. On today's episode, we explore the dramatic and unforeseen changes one city block can undergo in four centuries. You're listening to the Success Project podcast series. The NYU Development Research Institute, DRI, was founded by William Easterly and Yao Nyarko. DRI, understanding the barriers to growth and development. The Green Street block we're talking about today is in Lower Manhattan, between Houston and Prince Streets, only blocks away from the DRI offices. The high-end retail and luxurious apartments on Green Street today represent its latest chapter, but the block has undergone massive shifts in value and appearance. I sat down with Bill Easterly, co-author with Laura Fresky and Stephen Pennings of the paper, A Long History of a Short Block, Four Centuries of Development Surprises on a Single Stretch of a New York City Street, to get a better insight into the different stages of the block's life and what he thinks we can learn from looking at its history. The history of the block, of course, starts before Europeans arrive, but their paper began in the 1600s. We decided to start when the Europeans did arrive, because simply because we don't have any written records of what's going on before then. So um, really the first major thing that we notice is in the 1640s, when, the, of course, in that time it was New York was New Amsterdam, a Dutch colony. And the Dutch decided to give the land that is now Green Street to their slaves uh, for farms. So there were farms by slaves on our, on our block. The fact that these farms were being run by slaves shows how little value the land had at the time. The area was full of wetlands and had a very small human population. In fact, the land was perceived to have so little value that after a war with the British around this time, the Dutch decided between giving Britain New Amsterdam or Dutch Guyana, what is now Suriname. They, of course, gave New Amsterdam to the British, and the area became what we today know as New York. But then later, the farmland did become more valuable, and you get a, a guy named Nicholas Bayard, who's like a major part of the colonial elite, owning a gigantic farm called the Bayard Farm on our, on our block and many other surrounding blocks for about 100 years, um, almost to the end of the uh, 1700s. And then his great, it stayed in the family until his great-grandson, and he went bankrupt. And his bankruptcy is kind of the transition to the residential part of uh, the story. For the area to turn from agricultural to residential, a number of things had to happen. New Amsterdam was initially centered on the lowest part of Manhattan, so the city had to expand northward for the Green Street block, about 18 blocks north of New Amsterdam, to be considered a good place for anyone to live. And for the city to grow northward, something needed to cause a big population surge. And so the big thing that happened there was the opening of the Erie Canal really uh, generated a gigantic boost in the population of the city. And the other major thing that happened that was kind of driving people out of the city were uh, yellow fever epidemics that were, uh, you know, most dangerous if you stayed downtown where there was very contaminated water and very, you know, 
people didn't really know what was causing the yellow fever, but they had figured out that it was worse downtown than on the outside of the city. So people moved north into what we today refer to as Soho and Greenwich Village. But there was still something standing in the way of making this area appealing as a residential area. There were wetlands that were blocking the northward extension of the city uh, between our block and downtown. And so those wetlands, as the population kept growing and as people were wanting to move north uh, and they had to you know, run streets through those wetlands, they finally got around to draining the wetlands. And that is what is now Canal Street. It's called Canal Street because they, they built a big canal to uh, drain the wetlands and uh, they were drained. And so the city could expand. And that's when the residential neighborhood began on our block. Living away from the congestion and disease found in the lowest parts of Manhattan was a luxury for people at this time. The desire to live in more tranquility demanded a premium. So the residential period of the block was roughly from the 1820s to the 1850s. And so at that point, it was uh, kind of a relatively, by those standards of those days, a luxury residential neighborhood. You know, there were some very rich people who lived on, on the block. Uh, one of them was a, a guy named Benjamin Sejas, who was, uh, uh, belonged to a small ethnic group of Sephardic Portuguese Jews who had moved to New York at the end of the in the 1700s. His grandfather, Benjamin Sejas, also of the same name, <laughs> had, uh, had, had bought land at the bankruptcy of the, the Bayard great-grandson, and then apparently passed it down through the family to his grandson, and his grandson wound up living on our block. And, uh, you know, he, he was a very wealthy guy. He was a cigar importer. He had uh, real estate assets that were listed in the census that today would be the equivalent of about $17 million. The city continued to grow northward. With it, a new entertainment district moved in on Broadway only a couple blocks away. This was accompanied by hotels and a rowdy nightlife that suddenly made the area not as much of an appealing place to live for rich people. Instead, the physical character of the buildings and the proximity to this new district made it a perfect hub for what is sometimes called the world's oldest profession. The residential period had created these sort of housing stock of townhouses that are about two stories that have lots of little bedrooms which is perfect for brothels, of course. Uh, it was perfect for the families earlier. <laughs> and uh, there's only one of those left still standing on the block today, but we do, we do have one uh, that, you, that we, we walk by every day when we look at the block. In 1870, the block contained 14 brothels, the highest concentration in the city. As New York's population growth was driven largely by its role as a port on the eastern seaboard, sailors and businessmen came in looking for entertainment and prostitutes. But this brothel period didn't stick around for long. At that point, the, uh, there's some entrepreneurs that come in, like the Meinhard brothers, uh, again, uh, uh, belonging to kind of a special ethnic group that was uh, known for entrepreneurship, the sort of German-Jewish immigrants community that, that uh, played a large role in the garment industry in New York. So the Meinhard brothers came in at 133 Green, what used to be Benjamin Sejas's home, and then was a brothel after Benjamin Sejas moved out in a big hurry with his family to escape the brothels. Now uh, the Meinhard brothers buy up the, the, the brothels, they tear them down, and they build uh, six or seven-story cast iron buildings, which are the ones that are still there today, and that today seen as beautiful buildings. But their initiation was not as beautiful lofts, which is what they are today, but as factories. Uh, these were um, garment factories that employed lots of workers. And the kind of things that came together for this were um, both the workers had to be available, uh, the markets for the garments had to be available. So all of this sort of came together for the block at, in about the 1880 is about the turning point when suddenly everything is just sort of just right for it to be manufacturing. 
So at that point, you have you have lots of immigrants living nearby. Um, Russian Jewish immigrants are living on the Lower East Side. S- Southern Italian immigrants are living uh, in many different little Italy's that are all very close to the block. Both of those ethnic groups had a sort of background in the old world in either tailoring or sewing. And so they, they were disproportionately represented in the garment labor force afterwards. The other necessary change came with improving transportation infrastructure that made New York a perfect place from which to ship garments to world and domestic markets, with Green Street in particular as the ideal spot. The block is not only relatively close to piers on both sides of Manhattan, but Vanderbilt's new railroad terminal was built in the 1870s where the exit to the Holland Tunnel is today, not too far from our city block. This made Green Street a location accessible to markets by sea and the interior of the United States. At this point, the Green Street block has already undergone changes in its appearance, character, and value that no one could have predicted. The surge in value from the manufacturing replacing brothels might not have happened if the area was zoned to have one specific use. That would have been prevented if, say, the if some zealous city planner had decided this should be a residential neighborhood uh, and had prevented any other use besides residential, that would have prevented the whole garment industry boom that, that was really necessary for creating a value. Also would have you know trapped in place something that people really didn't want. At that point, people didn't want the block to be a residence. So why should the planner say what the block should be as opposed to local residents decide on their own uh, well, whether they're willing to stay as residents, whether they're going to sell out to manufacturers, you know, that, they, that should be a decision for the locals, not for some top-down city planner. Just like the entertainment district before it, the garment industry wasn't going to be on Green Street forever. So the garment boom on the block lasts from 1880 to about 1910. And, uh, you know, it was great while it lasted for the uh, workers and the, the owners. But it ends pretty unexpectedly, and uh, what, what's going on that it ends so suddenly? Uh, one of the major things going on is the Triangle Factory fire that happens in 19, 1911. That was a real tragedy for, uh, for the nation, for the, the workers that died in that fire, and it really galvanized uh, the, the campaign for, for safer factories. Ironically, the Triangle Factory was uh, a few blocks north of our block, was actually uh, a safer factory than the ones on our block. It had already implemented some improvements. Demand increased for new factories that were safer and much less susceptible to tragedies like the one at the Triangle Factory. So the garment industry moved uptown. So then after that, uh, what was left is kind of like some kind of low value manufacturing like cardboard boxes and paper products. and. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't nothing, but it was, um, frankly, turning into kind of an industrial slum. Uh, you know, it was very grimy, low-value industry stuff going on, and uh, anyone visiting the block would say, you know, this is a slum. And that's exactly what the city planners who were paying attention started to have more power in this period, like uh, the great city planner Robert Moses is sort of coming into power in the, in the, the 40s and 50s. City officials saw no hope except to tear down the area and place it with new buildings. But just as the block's changing character from residential to brothels, or brothels to garment industry, was hard to predict ahead of time, the potential value of Green Street was inevitably misjudged by the city planners. So Robert Moses and the other planners were very badly wrong about the, the block being uh, you know, something that required very drastic action, tearing down all the buildings and kind of having the city sponsor new buildings that would be supposedly better for manufacturing and try to save manufacturing on the block. Um, that was a, 
a crazy idea, and they should have known from the history of the block that you can't really plan a surprise, <laughs> that the block is one surprise after another, and you can't plan surprises. You just have to let the surprises happen. So fortunately, Moses was defeated by the visionary urban activist Jane Jacobs and, and in alliance with the, the neighborhoods in Soho and Greenwich Village that did not want Robert Moses to tear, tear down the neighborhoods. The buildings on Green Street, seen as having little value and in need of tearing down, actually had a value the artists saw, but Robert Moses and other city planners didn't. The high ceilings and large spaces of the former garment district were perfect and essentially necessary for a new form of art called abstract expressionism that was characterized by gigantic canvases and sculptures by artists like Jackson Pollock and Frank Stella. The low property value also bode well for the artists. But here on our block, you have these very large spaces that are very cheap because they're, they're currently housing a kind of industrial slum, so the buildings are very cheaply available for rent or purchase. And so the artists and the art galleries just start flooding into our block, and our block and the surrounding blocks becomes the epicenter of the New York art world. While previous transitions of Green Street may have been unexpected, they were also unhindered by government interference. This time was a little different. Yeah, so this is, this is a period when now there is some zoning, uh, contrary to the earlier periods when zoning was not very very active. But now, you know, the city planners think, oh, this block is a manufacturing block. It should be zoned only for manufacturing, not for residential. And the, the artists who are trying to move in to the block to have their, they want to have the, to move in and then have large studios in their own homes. That's what they want to do. And they, and they do indeed start doing this on the block. And they, they just um, are just going to, you know, basically hide from the zoning inspectors to make this possible. You know, there are stories about how the artists would um, kind of keep the blinds down during the day, um, that they would take their, their household trash out and distribute it among many different little trash cans throughout the neighborhood so that nobody would notice that there were residents living there. You know, there were kind of embarrassing scenes when a, a zoning inspector would stumble into a, an apartment where the, an artist was sketching a nude model and had to, you know, explain what was going on there all of a sudden. And, Somehow they talked their way out of that. <laughs> they just they, they really succeeded in just evading the zoning regulations. That's what made the art boom possible. So the the art artists and art gallery period lasted um, from it had started after the defeat of Moses in the fifties and sixties, and it lasted into the nineteen eighties. And then um, you know it's the same old process. <laughs> Things never stay still. There's more creative destruction coming. You know, other large, cheap spaces become available for the art galleries in Chelsea. And, uh, you know, now our block is starting to get pricey because, precisely because the artists and art galleries are attracting uh, wealthier residents to move into our neighborhood. And by this time, the zoning uh, thing has been fixed and people have legalized artists, they've legalized residences, uh, the cities kind of was came around after the fact to kind of, uh, you know, allow what was already happening. The new wealthy residents drove up property prices, and a lot of the artists and galleries were pushed out to Brooklyn and other parts of Manhattan. The final step in the block's history is, and not the final, just the final until now, because there's no reason to think that it will not keep changing. In fact, what's fascinating about the block is even while we've been working on it, it's been changing before our eyes, you know, so we've notice some of the last art galleries going out of business and, and new stores coming in, even while we've been working on the project. And what are these new stores? Well, they're, they're now the luxury retail. This is the luxury retail thing, uh, history of our block on the, on the ground floor. The, the, resi the luxury residential co-ops are on the upper floors. On the ground floor, we have uh, 
you know, really high value retail. Uh, that's really driving up, again, driving up rents spectacularly by a factor of six or more over, you know, just a couple of decades as, as designer retail and luxury co-ops move in. So we have things like Ralph Lauren, we have uh, Christian Dior is now at, at 133 Green, where Benjamin Sejas was, and then the brothels were, and then the Meinhard brothers had built a, a garment factory there, and now it's Christian Dior on the ground floor. And on the upper floors, it's you know some rich people with their co-ops. Uh, and then, of course, the the crowning achievement of the block is to get an Apple store. <laughs> There's an Apple store on the on the corner at the bottom of the block in the corner of Prince and Green, and that has made the block super hip. And so, you know, this last phase is um, is also you know again just reflecting some some other changes that are happening nearby or far away. That um, you know part of the, one of the positive shocks was crime sort of got under control by uh, thanks to kind of changes in policing strategies by the New York Police Department that made the block's current current incarnation possible. And um, you know, and that's it's also just again the effect of stuff that's happening on Broadway, which is two blocks over. There's lots of retail on Broadway, which are are very very expensive, uh, at, you know, retail rents for, for retail stores, and they kind of spill over to the nearby blocks, which includes our block. In the four centuries we've examined, this one city block has gone through dramatic changes, from farmland to residential, to brothels, to garment district, to industrial slum, to art galleries, to high-end retail and residences. These changes were often unanticipated by everyone, and it was impossible to predict where the block would go next. So I think um, you know, the takeaway is simply that the Looking at this very small scale, you see this kind of amazing process of creative destruction. Uh, there's just the block is constantly changing. Sometimes it's going up, sometimes it's going down, but uh, you know, in the long run, it's really, really going up, up, up. And uh, that was only possible because you allow the change to happen. So um, you know, it's really the lesson is just you don't try to plan exactly what's going to happen on the block because you can't plan a surprise. You just have to let the surprises happen. I think that's a broader message for development as a whole. And I don't necessarily mean only let sort of free markets operate without hindrance. It's also sort of let the democratic process operate to kind of prevent any any kind of top-down crazy plans destroying the block, as happened in the whole Jane Jacobs versus Robert Moses story. But the democratic process is sort of part of the spontaneous process that sort of protects and empowers the people on the block to kind of make their own make their own destiny. And you know, one thing you definitely don't want to do is to ever sort of freeze in place what's on the block, or to kind of try to rescue a declining industry that's on the block. You know, if if the planners had gotten their way and tried to rescue manufacturing on the block, it would be sort of a, like a Detroit on a on a on a small scale. The Green Street Block is a super pricey hub for shopping and living today. But who's to say what its next phase will be? Legislation designed to try to protect the character or value of a neighborhood may be misguided and actually hinder this process of creative destruction that allowed Green Street to dynamically change the way it has through its history. The message that planners have to understand is it doesn't really matter, you know, what 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 sector is operating currently on the block. You know, what there's no reason to say we think because manufacturing is happening now on the block that we think manufacturing should continue to happen. It doesn't really matter what happens and where it happens. You just want to allow people the freedom to determine their own destinies, to do what they want, to do the economic activities and non-economic activities that they want to do. (laughs) 
And uh, that's, that, it's people that matter. It's not industries. It's not, uh, you know, and let people be in charge of their own destinies. That's sort of the broader message for development. This episode of the Success Project podcast series was recorded in New York, New York, hosted by Will Comperl and produced by Carmen Cuesta Visit nyudri.org to hear other episodes in our series, read the Green Street paper, and learn more about the Success Project. This project was made possible through the support of a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed in this publication are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. Mm-hmm.